This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. Let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right, let's get right to it. Hello, welcome to Cut to the Chase. I have been obsessed. If you've been listening to this podcast and this radio show, I have been obsessed with technology, with AI, and maybe I've watched too many science fiction films, too many apocalyptic binges on Netflix. Uh, But the thing that's been really kind of keeping me up at night is this whole idea of biometric recognition. And for, you know, I'm always looking for people to kind of calm me down and uh, explain what's really going on. So who better than Seth Berman? He is a partner at the Nutter Law Firm, and he leads their privacy and data security practice group. So he works with corporations in navigating and succeeding in our ever-changing world of data privacy, cybersecurity, where vulnerabilities, and there are new, seem to be new ones every day, can lead to data breaches, hacking, ransomware attempts, and other kinds of cyber attacks. Uh, Seth Berman also teaches a cyber crime law class at Harvard Law School. He's been on TV here in the U.S. and the U.K., so you may have seen him there. And he's also a former federal prosecutor. So, Seth, welcome to Cut to the Chase. Thank you so much, Laura. I'm so glad I could be here. So you deal a lot with corporations, with you know international pharmaceutical companies, that sort of thing. Uh, but this is a personal issue for a lot of individuals like me. And I liken it, you know, we give our facial recognition to Apple, uh, Alexa and Siri can start analyzing our moods and how we ask for things. All of this stuff is being recorded when we don't even know it. Uh, we give our health data to apps like Strava and other other places. We don't really know where it goes. So is this is am I being paranoid if I liken this to the frog in the pot of water over a slow fire? Doesn't realize it's too late <laughs> until it's boiled. Are we allowing ourselves to be kind of taken over by this technology? Uh, in a word, yes. I think that's actually a pretty good analogy. I think we um, are definitely uh, slowly letting uh, companies decide how it's appropriate to use things like facial recognition technology. And it's really only uh, after something terrible happens that any government agency or anyone leaps in to try to say, wait, is this a good idea? Do we want to go down this road? And sometimes we're so far down the road at that point that it's pretty hard to unwind. Right. And I think about what's going on in China. I mean, it's been reported for years now. If you so much as jaywalk, you can get a fine right on the spot because there are cameras, they're recording you, they know your social score, and you could even lose some points. Maybe you can't get that ticket to the concert or get that job promotion that you wanted. And we think, oh, well, that's China. It's not going to happen here. That's totalitarian. We don't have that. But we had something Madison Square Garden, where someone who is not friendly to the company who was perceived that way was asked to leave because of facial recognition software. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the Madison Square Garden uh, case is interesting because the particular person who was asked to leave hadn't actually done anything against Madison Square Garden. The offense uh, that was cited for why they weren't allowed to be there is that they worked at a law firm and the law firm, a different lawyer at the law firm, had sued Madison Square Garden. Um, so Madison Square Garden decided that they were not going to let in anyone who uh, who had been you know, even involved in a law firm that was suing them. So it was sort of a way for them to really try to uh, punish uh, law firms for taking legal actions against uh, against Madison Square Garden, which seems pretty far from the way that I think people thought this might be used mm-hmm. um, and is a pretty uh, kind of chilling thing, certainly for us lawyers, but even perhaps for people who aren't lawyers. And Seth, from what I understand, this was perfectly legal, right? Um, well, that's somewhat in dispute. Um, there is a. Um, it turns out there's a very old uh, statute in uh, in New York uh, that prevents uh, companies from uh, sort of discriminating against who they allow into. Um, uh, I think it's theaters uh, and hmm. music performances, and essentially that was designed so a long, long time ago for a totally different reason, which was to protect uh, companies from blocking critics, like newspaper reporters, oh, that's from so reporting. Interesting. Huh. Um, so. So right now, Madison Square Garden is actually under a rule that they have to let those lawyers in for uh, for concerts, but they don't actually have to let them in for sporting events, which isn't covered by that law. Interesting. I mean, that brings up the whole thought about regulation. There's no uniform, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but there's no uniform regulation nationwide about this. There's some states, you know, patch sort of a patchwork quilt of random regulations here and there in various states and municipalities, but there's nothing uniform, whereas, say, in Italy, they have put a ban on chat GPT over privacy concerns. You know, other we're seeing other countries making laws, whereas we're kind of waiting to see what happens and maybe slowly being that frog in the, in the boiling pot of water. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the, the uh, Europe in general um, has been much more aggressive about trying to regulate privacy um, as it relates to companies. The United States, um, for complicated cultural reasons, probably, we tend to worry more about technology or privacy as it relates to how the government uses it, Mm. but um, seem kind of blind to how companies use or abuse our privacy. Um, So as a result, I think the United States has, at least at the moment, kind of left the field, the playing field to other countries to regulate uh, on privacy issues. We're all very familiar with Alexa, with Siri. We use AI. We use this kind of technology much more than we realize. Um, There's one thing that Amazon is doing now when you ask Alexa for something. She is able to sense when you're frustrated. They call it frustration detection. And uh, the, the company says, with frustration detection, Alexa will recognize positive, negative, and neutral tone for a request. Um, Amazon has also been caught monitoring their customers without their consent, uh, recording conversations, yada, yada. So, you know, who knows how, where that might go? I mean, my mind goes to kind of uh, dystopian places when I think about that. And I don't know if I'm being overly paranoid. I think that you are uh, right to worry. Uh, Where we actually end up is still obviously unknown. Mm. Uh, But the ability of of AI to detect uh, how people are reacting to things and effectively manipulate people is something that I think we'll really have to uh, think through as a society, how much we're willing to take. Um, And uh, I fear we might start thinking that through only after we've decided it was too much. So when you advise corporations 
What is their biggest concern? Obviously, it's well. You tell me. I have some ideas of what it might be. But what are their? What is you know? What are their top three things that keep them up at night? Well, I mean, the biggest concern for any corporation really is, is you know, the ultimate question of, is this legal? Um, mm-hmm. And very often the answer to that question is going to be, well, there's nothing that prevents you from doing it. So, yes, um, at least in the United States. Um, they, they do worry that they might be violating the laws of other countries. And uh, we're talking about European laws before. They're written quite broadly mm-hmm. um, and in some sense are becoming the international standard. So some companies try to abide by them, even though they don't necessarily apply to every circumstance. Um, so that's one set of questions. Um, I think they also wonder, okay, put aside sort of regulations. Is there a risk we're going to get sued over this uh, because, you know, someone claims some sort of harm we hadn't thought of? Mm. Um, the question that I think companies should be asking but usually aren't is sort of the ought we do this? Like, is it ethical for us to do this? Right. Um, which is a very different question. Um, and some companies do try to grapple with that. Uh, a lot of companies do not. Hmm. How do how do individuals how do we protect ourselves if you're someone who is concerned about this you're concerned about your information getting captured you're you know I go through clear when I go through TSA at the airport you know that my eye is scanned some that sits somewhere um, I ask Siri for stuff all the time I notice when I'm typing uh, AI is helping suggest what words I use how can people protect themselves when these tools seem to be making life so much easier, but in the end might take us down a road we don't want to go down? Um, You know, I think the short answer to that might be there's not a whole lot you can do. In fact, I think one of the fundamental flaws of how we've conceived of privacy in the United States is that privacy, we often say, basically comes down to uh, notice and consent. So if somewhere in a long privacy notice that no one reads, you inform people correctly about what you're doing, and tell people that they have to consent to use it. Um, Usually that's enough in the United States to let companies do almost anything, even though it's really sort of pretend consent, right? Because no one really even knows what they're consenting to. Mm. Um, It's extremely difficult to opt yourself out of this unless you're willing to like live in a cabin by yourself and not (laughs) interact with the world. There's not a good solution to this, which is why, you know, probably more regulation is necessary. And I think anyone can relate to that experience. You need to get an app for something for a parking ticket, you know, for, you know, parking meter or something like that. You download the app really quickly. You're like, yeah, yeah, agree, agree, agree. It's pages and pages of stuff you're not reading. And you could be signing off your firstborn for all you know. Yes. In fact, there was a a researcher who uh, agreed with some company to insert some sort of random language in their privacy policies that said things like the first 20 people that read this call this number and you'll get a hundred dollars. And like nobody called. (laughs) Oh my God. Well, that gives me an incentive to read that stuff. (laughs) I'm wondering if you can settle a debate that I'm having with my friends. So how often is it? And you've probably had this, you heard this anecdotally as well. You're sitting with friends, you're talking about, Hey, you know, I'd really always wanted to go to Bali. And you're just talking about that. My uncle went to Bali and yada, yada. And then someone picks up their phone and lo and behold, on their social media feed is an ad travel to Bali. Is it all, is, is it that phone monitoring, listening, going, not, not a person. I, you know, I don't imagine there's a person there behind the curtain, uh, manipulating this, but is there some sort of algorithm that's paying attention even when you're not? paying attention to your phone? 
It's a great question, and I'm not 100% sure. I think the answer is I don't think so. I think what's actually happening is that so much else of what you're doing is being monitored all the time that it's not so uncommon that the conversation you're having matches up with something somebody's Googled or otherwise, you know, sort of revealed to the world of the internet that you're interested in, and then it shows up and you immediately think it's related to the conversation. Oh, Either way, it's yeah. closely monitoring you, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's because of what you were saying. But you're not 100% sure. I mean, nothing would truly surprise me, but I, I haven't heard that anyone has admitted that they're doing that. Yeah, but that does make sense. So it kind of gets a sense of who you are, what you're interested in, and it just happens to be a coincidence that they were exactly on target in that moment. Right. It's not exactly a coincidence, though, because like they, they are they already know what you're interested in and what you're interested in is what you talk about. So those two things happen together anyway. And then, I, of course, I always go back to thinking about politics. How can things be used for pornography? It's either like how can things be used for pornography or how can they be used for politics? And my mind goes to politics. We are living. It's no secret in a very in a more stratified world people find their media outlets they find their social media outlets they find their favorite blogs websites whatever it is and they kind of tend to stick with what they know and what they like so they're stuck in their echo chamber they don't really hear other things my other concern is this kind of data well it, it already is being used for political campaigns collecting people's data buying patterns demographic patterns even health patterns uh, but I'm wondering if this will even ex exacerbate the dividedness and make those silos more like bunkers more and more as we go down this road. Is that something that ever comes up in your in your work? Um, the political you know, side of it? Ever since the 2016 election and Facebook got into trouble for uh, essentially selling a whole bunch of information to, uh, you know, what ultimately turned into various campaigns about, um, you know, who, who they could be targeting and what those people were interested in. There has been uh, much more focus on this issue, sort of how this technology could be used for divisiveness. Mm. Um, you know, one thing I do see is that the first generation of kind of like the internet entrepreneurs, um, like Zuckerberg, since we're on the subject of, uh, of Facebook, um, you know, they thought of what they were doing and they talked about what they were doing as this unalloyed good, right? They were going to connect the world and yeah, they were connect the world in a new and different way. And, and that right. was going to be awesome. Yeah. Right. And they never, uh, so far as we can tell, gave a lot of thought in advance to how it might be not totally awesome for everyone to be connected to each other at all times. Mm. Um, I think the current generation, it, at least the conversation is different going in. So if you look at the folks who are in the middle of creating like the AI companies, right? Right very differently, they're running around screaming about how AI might be awful. Um, now, you know, it's interesting because they're still doing it, right? So they, it's not totally different. But, it's so but interesting not, to me, though. Yeah, because these are the guys that th these are their companies. Right. It's their companies and they're doing it and they're also screaming like, we need regulation because this could be terrible. Yeah. So, so it's a very different attitude. It's an understanding that technology right off the bat is a dual-edged sword, which I think uh, the you know in the earlier days of the internet, people really didn't acknowledge even to themselves. Um, and now I think we are acknowledging it. And it'll be interesting to see if that changes how these companies act and how governments react to these companies. I suspect it will, but, huh. uh, but that remains to be seen. Yeah, it's almost like back in those halcyon days when this was all new, we were naive and perhaps they were naive as to what could happen. Now they know better than anyone the darkness that this can bring. They have to guard against it. They're potentially liable for a lot of, they're not really, but they could be. 
down the road for bad things happening. And so now that they know what kind of power this can unleash, now they want to stop it before it gets too out of the barn. Yeah, I think it's that, and it's probably less at the moment about risk of like getting into legal trouble or getting sued. I think it's risk of being hated. Mm. Um, you know, these people build these companies and they think of themselves as, you know, the greatest entrepreneur since Henry Ford. Mm. And then suddenly the whole world hates them. Yeah. Um, and they don't like that. And I think the newer entrepreneurs are seeing that, like, you know, you go from being godlike to, to, to the devil very rapidly in this world. And I think to some extent they're trying to avoid that because nobody wants that. Right. When you see them being grilled uh, in Congress and it's the Republicans. That's actually one of the few things right now that is uniting the Republicans and the Democrats is being very hard on tech and trying to hold them accountable. Yeah. Now, as you go forward and you, you're advising businesses, you're dealing with some serious lawsuits. I mean, I know you're not going to name names. I'm not going to ask you to. What is one of the most interesting cases that you've had to deal with lately when it comes to cybersecurity uh, and the intersection of biometrics and, and well, personal data? You know, I think that, that, like in general, uh, the in the cybersecurity world, the kind of worry uh, that's most hot at the moment is worries around um, ransomware attacks. And the and just explain of, explain that in a nutshell. If people don't know what's a ransomware attack, just let, just dex- describe it in a sentence. Yeah. So a ransomware attack is when uh, hackers get into your system, encrypt the data, so you can no longer see your own system, and then tell you that the only way to decrypt the data is if you pay them a large sum of money, a ransom. Which, by the um, way, just happened. Well, just it last year happened in Suffolk County. It was a very big deal. Didn't get a lot of press, but this is a county of 1.5 million people. Was crippled. Its whole technology system was crippled by ransomware. So it's a big deal, and it is happening. So go on. Yeah. And so it used to be that that was all the ransomware people did, but then people came up with various systems to essentially deal with their data even after it's encrypted. So the bad guys got more clever and started also stealing your data and threatening to make it public. Mm. And so sometimes now you see clients who actually can recover from the ransomware attack. They can say, okay, we have backups or systems where we can get ourselves back up and running in two days. We're not willing to pay $20 million to solve that. However, what are we supposed to do about the fact that our customers' data is now out there? And if we don't uh, if we don't pay the ransom, are we sort of responsible for what happens to it next? Yeah. And, you know, it's a really tough moral dilemma for companies because even as, you know, assuming that their only motivation is doing the right thing, which might not always be true, but let's assume it is, it's not even clear what the right thing to do is because every time you pay a ransom, you are also helping, you know, promote the whole concept of ransomware. You're enabling it. Bad guys. Yeah, you're enabling it. You're letting it continue for some other company. So sure, you're protecting your customers, but you're probably hurting some future customers or someone else. Yeah. So it's not easy to know what to do. Is there a lot of anxiety among your clients about this kind of stuff? Absolutely. Um, yeah. Although in truth, uh, people tend to be more anxious about it after it's happened to them. Beforehand, yeah. they're always convinced that they'll be the one that doesn't get hit. Right. Well, uh, I say buyer beware, be very careful, <laughs> people out there, what information you're giving to this this growing trove of very, very personal information. And it'll be interesting to see. I hope that we all live long enough to see <laughs> how this all, how this story unfolds. Me too. Seth Berman, a partner at specializing in privacy and data security at Nutter Law Firm. I'm sorry, I just got to make that joke. You're in the UK a lot. Nutter in the UK means crazy person. So that must be a source of fun over pints after, (laughs) after your meetings over there. 
It certainly is, and it's sad because the firm was actually started by Louis Brandeis, who later became a Supreme Court justice, and as a result, they had to take his name off the firm. So oh. we ended up with the name of not even the founder. Not even the founder. Well, Seth Berman, thank you so much. I don't know if you made me feel any better, but I certainly feel smarter about this subject. All right. Uh, nice talk with you. Take care. Thanks for listening to Cut to the Chase. If you like what you hear, like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 